okay, I want to, I want to help the people around me be as good as they can be. And if I can do that, then that brings out the best in me. That's mm-hmm. the best. That's mm-hmm. the best me that I can be. Hello, leaders, and welcome to another episode of the Military Leader Podcast, bringing you conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman. So thankful you are tuning in to the podcast and getting a glimpse of some of the amazing conversations I've had with leaders across the military. I hope this podcast is added value for you and your team as you commit to growing as leaders. You're probably listening to this episode on iTunes, but if you're not an iTunes person, you can plug in on Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and Google Play Music. And of course, you can stream it online at themilitaryleader.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the articles that my colleagues and I have written about leadership, leader development, team building, productivity, and lots of other relevant topics for growing leaders. You know, the military profession is great for networking. Switching jobs and duty locations creates so many opportunities to meet new peers, mentors, and leaders. But have you ever met someone whose impact is immediately apparent and you wish you would have come across them years ago? Well, that's what I said about this week's guest. In 2016, several peers had told me about Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman, but I had never met him. I had also seen some documents floating around from his time commanding 3rd Battalion, 509th Parachute Infantry in Alaska. Then while I was at the pre-command course, he graciously set up a VTC with our class to share his thoughts on how to win at NTC. At the time, he was Tarantula 07, the Senior Light Task Force trainer, but then moved on to serve as Bronco 07, the Senior Brigade trainer. On that VTC, Matt spent over two hours pouring lessons into this unknown group of soon-to-be battalion commanders, and after five pages of notes that helped guide me through multiple NTC rotations, I can tell you his advice paid off. He didn't have to devote his afternoon to us, but he did it anyway, because he's committed to making the Army more ready. Aside from being a tactics and soccer enthusiast, Lieutenant Colonel Hardman is a candid, authentic leader who can somehow inspire while holding people accountable. He isn't afraid to tell it like it is, and in this conversation, you'll hear his thoughts on the state of Army readiness and what units should be doing to be ready for the next big war, which he says is a sure bet. Because Matt is willing to learn from anyone, it isn't surprising that one of his most important leadership lessons came from a fired-up specialist on a dark drop zone who would not let a correction go unsaid, no matter what rank needed to hear it. Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman is currently attending Senior Service College Fellowship and will pin on Colonel sometime soon, surely to command a tactical brigade. I was so thankful that he took the time to chat with me while I was at Fort Irwin last year. And in this episode, you may notice that the audio is a little different than the other ones. This is actually the very first episode I did for the podcast, and I've made a few adjustments since then. Regardless, I hope you enjoy this chat with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman. At the National Training Center, you were Tarantula 07, right? And then currently Bronco 07 coaching the brigade staff and the commander. Right? You give That's some guidance great. to the commander. Uh, ad- ad- advice. Advice? <laughs> Not guidance, but advice. Yeah, yeah. good clarification. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... 
So first I want to talk about leader energy, right? So you are one of the most energetic leaders that I've ever come across in the army. Like it's a, it's, it's constant every time I engage with you. How important is that energy? Um, in leadership, how, how important is it for a leader to have that and just display that energy? So, you know, I, I very much believe that, uh, you know, there's, it takes all like diversity of leaders is I think a key. I mean, good teams have balance of folks, you know, um, I think back to my company XO when I was a company commander, Dave Besco, very, uh, quiet, uh, measured guy. And uh, I actually gravitate towards like folks like that and having mm-hmm. folks like that on my team because uh, they offset. Um, yeah. And, and we complement each other. And, um, you know, and I've, it, I've also worked uh, for commanders or leaders uh, that were very much the opposite of me. In some ways, the folks I've gotten on best with uh, in the Army have been folks that are opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's probably no surprise my wife and I are are somewhat opposites as well. And, um, you know, I can be too much for people at times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had a, a, a former commander of mine, you know, you say your greatest strength is often your greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, um, and I think the other part of that is <clears throat> you got to be who you are. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you have weaknesses, you don't try and build on those weaknesses or whatever, but, you gotta, you gotta kind of be who you are and, and not try to be something that you're not. And, um, for me, it's just naturally how I am. I'm, I'm an incredibly inquisitive person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm very, uh, curious about the world. I'm curious about people. Um, I can't sit on an airplane next to somebody and not kind of strike up a conversation. Right. Um, and it's just how I am. And so, you know, instead of turning away from that, I, I've tried to just turn into it, just be me and, um, it can be, it can be overwhelming for, for folks. And so, you know, internally recognizing when it's not being helpful to an individual or a situation is something that I've had to mature in. Um, and I, I'm sure folks that know me, listen to this, will say sometimes I don't get that right. Um, what, well, so from a leader perspective, what does it look like when someone is not lining up with your level of connection, right? Like, what is it? What does that What does that indicator look like when you're just too much for? Um, I just can. I sometimes I sense it, and sometimes, unfortunately, I sense it like when it's too late. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, you know, I know, I know, you know, at times, like people just like, hey, get to the point. Like, what you know, land your plane, <laughs> land your plane. Tell me, tell me, uh, you know, tell me what you need me to do. Um, but that. You know, by personality type, I, I tend to, uh, you know, there's no debate I don't want to be a part of. And so, you know, I like to engage people. Sometimes people take that as being challenged, uh, senior leaders at times, uh, or even subordinates. But, you know, I like to play devil's advocate. I'll throw something out there that I may not necessarily agree with, uh, but just kind of mm-hmm. see where, where somebody else is coming from. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, try, I like to pie problems. So if there's a problem or a situation, I, I try and kind of pie that problem to understand it better. And, um, you know, it comes from engaging people. And I think the other part for me personally is that, I mean, I really, really like people. Mm-hmm. Um, I genuinely do. I, um, I have a, a tendency to see the best in folks mm-hmm. and, um, 
you know, I think, you know, I think there's a, a component to our army and our society is that, you know, Americans love second chances and, and underdogs. And so I, you know, I'm attracted to, I'm attracted to that. And mm-hmm. people. I'm attracted into, um, you know, I was a college walk on, um, mm-hmm. I've always been a scrapper. And so, you know, seeing people that overcome hardship or overcome adversity or overcome shortcomings, I, I just, I kind of revel in their success. And uh-huh. It's a lot of fun to be a part of. And, you know, being an army officer and in particular in the infantry, you just get exposed to so many people that each one's kind of on their own journey. Um, and I'm just kind of fascinated by people's journeys mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, where I can help, I, I enjoy helping um, mm-hmm. folks. And, um, so for me, I mean, that's, that's just naturally kind of how I am. Um, you know, I, I, I had a a mentor of mine tell me, you know, uh, I think, you know, what he saw as one of my strongest attributes was just a positive outlook. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm very realistic in the way I view the world. You know, I maybe even a little cynical at times. Uh, in terms of how things are, but I'm incredibly optimistic that, that there's no problem that can't be solved. Yeah. Right. Um, right. which is know. important in the, in the, in the worst moments in the infantry world. It's good to have a leader that can come up with positivity. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feed off, uh, you know, I'm mean, always really blessed as a commander. I mean, I had, uh, my command sergeant major was like, uh, way more low key than me, but like the guy always had a smile on his face. And so, you know, that fed me in a lot of ways. I mean, that energy fed me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I definitely, I, you know, I need time to sometimes back up, reflect, think, uh, but I definitely get most of my energy from being around and engaging other people. I got great advice before going into battalion command, like a friend of mine is like, Hey, whenever you're just like beat down and having a crappy day, like, get out of the office, walk down mm-hmm. and go see, you know, soldiers mm-hmm. uh, because it'll put a smile on your face. Yeah. And if you can't walk through a company and talk to soldiers and, and not be uh, motivated, entertained, yeah. uh, inspired, you know, you, you might be in the wrong line of work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That's exceptional advice. It's, I'm struck by the authenticity, you know, cause it's clear that you're authentic. Right. Like it doesn't sound like you've had moments where you've tried to be somebody else or you try to put on airs. Is that something that came natural for you? No, I mean, you have to- I, I think, you know, certainly starting out as a lieutenant and, um, you know, I, you know, I experienced this at West Point, you know, teaching there with people be like, oh, I'm just not like, I don't think I'm the right fit for the infantry. And you're like, well, why? Well, I'm, I'm not six foot five, weigh 250 pounds mm-hmm. and, you know. Um, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I mean, I, I always probably had some of those, uh, self doubts and, and prejudices of, um, how an infantry leader is supposed to act mm-hmm. or how a leader is supposed to act. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate. I got two platoons in the first platoon. I was a mech PL and first of the 23rd. Uh-huh. Um, and then the second one was, uh, you know, being a support platoon leader. And I think one of the great things about being a junior leader is you, you kind of get the opportunity to try some things out. Um, and then, you know, reinvent yourself a little bit. And I mean, I, I led my second platoon very differently than I led the first one. I mean, different missions, different jobs, but there were things I look back on as a, 
infantry platoon leader that I regretted, you know, just too much of a loud mouth, too much of rah, rah. And, um, you know, so the second time around it's okay. Be more me. And I think as I matured, I just got more comfortable just with who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, um, you know, every single NCO I've probably served with has been like, Hey, you're, you're too familiar with the, the soldiers. And it's like, well, I'm just, I'm familiar with everybody. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to go talk to everybody. I'm just mm-hmm. interested in talking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, know, you just got to, you got to be comfortable with who you are. I mean, fully understand, you know, as you mature, you understand the limits and that, you know, potentially you make things awkward for other people if you're not careful on those things. But, um, really over time. And then, you know, I, I was very fortunate early on. I mean, I had, um, General Nicholson was my battalion commander first mm-hmm. of the 23rd. Yeah. And, you know, I was just always struck by, um, there's a day in the motor pool right after the transition from Mac to striker was announced that chief staff, of the army came down and I watched as General then Colonel Nicholson interacted with sergeants, privates, lieutenants, and the chief staff of the army. And he talked to them all the same way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's uh, admirable. Yeah. I mean, it really, I mean, the guy's a, a, a master. I mean, it's who he is. And he's a g- very genuine person. And, and that kind of stuck with me of like, Hey, you just, you got to do you as well as you can do mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that quality, does it take, you, without discounting the rank, I mean, you have to peel the rank back and peel the, some of the, infrastructure of our chain of command and all that back to see the person, you know, do you find that some leaders just have a hard time disassociating the person from the position and the stature and the rank, I mean, especially here at NTC, as you see leaders come through the box? Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen folks, you know, throughout my career that I feel like at times, um, are playing it whatever rank mm-hmm. they're in, mm-hmm. you know, versus like, Hey, I mean, just be you, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I don't do well with like the, uh, oh shucks, I'm just a dumb infantryman, you know, kind of shtick of, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I've, I've heard that from a couple, uh, folks along the way. And I'm like, okay, you got a master's degree from Harvard. You're probably not an idiot. Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't think it's helpful when people do that because I think it's pretty over time it's transparent certainly with those that are closest mm-hmm. um, you know I did get some feedback in a 360 assessment uh, before battalion command uh, from a captain um, who I really respected a lot I thought very highly of her and uh, I mean, she's a really good officer and, and uh, you know she was like I don't think he has any any life outside of work. And, um, you know, as somebody I'd served with for almost a year and a half and, um, you know, I was a brigade executive officer at the time. And I was like, damn, like there's a whole bunch of reasons why I don't want anybody to, to, to think that like one, that's not how I see myself. Uh-huh. Um, and two, like, I mean, nothing could be worse for captains to look up and see majors or lieutenant colonels and be like, well, I don't want to grow up to be that. Yeah, that's right. That's my future. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and so uh, it did cause me to be maybe more open with talking about my family and talking about things okay. outside of work, yeah. which those things were a part of my life. Um, I mean, I I, uh, I got really good advice going into major time and I never brought work home with me. 
you know, I would come in very, very early, work hard, mm-hmm. uh, so I wasn't taking away time from my family. Mm-hmm. I mean, time with my kids was incredibly important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got more hobbies than I should. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are important to me, too, because I think they fill you out as a person. Um, but it was eye-opening that somebody thought that there wasn't more there than than just, you know, yeah. a brigade XO, a major. Um, so that's, I think that's it's... Interesting. You know, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it, as you said, kind of the hierarchy and structure can make it um, very difficult at times for people that you serve with um, for you to be accessible to them um, emotionally or whatever. And um, I don't know, it's something I've tried to work on. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're all human. We're all we all have flaws. Like we all have problems. I mean, I think that's one of the the challenges that we've got in our society and and in our army is like, people are like, well, you know, everything's kind of going to to crap for me and everybody else has it all figured out. And and the reality is none of us have it all figured out. You know, um, nobody does, but we're all doing the best we can. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, everybody's human. I mean, I think, you know, it's, you look at senior leaders and um, you know, empathy is probably a trait across our army that we all could do a better job at. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, well, those guys just don't get it, man. I guarantee you the chief staff of the army and division commander, they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, and, and, you know, largely, you know, the vast majority of those folks, just like every, every rifleman in the army is getting up every day and, and wants to do the best they can for all the right reasons, mm-hmm. you know, um, so, I mean, I think that empathy, and I've had to remind that myself of that, mm-hmm. like dealing yeah. with senior leaders of like, hey, they, I just see it different. This person, this person doesn't, you know, they don't hate America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That's, it's interesting you said that about being more personable. I had similar feedback on the True Growth Survey for the pre-command course. The lowest category there was in the rankings was you know, states... Uh, purpose for serving and basically my coach who was Ray Barrett he was really great uh, yeah it really helped me prepare for command you know he said you know you need to you need to open up a little bit about the why you know what's your why what's your you know your purpose because people are curious about that they want to know and I think a part of my approach was well if I talk about myself in an open you know in a forum it's kind of like it's not really being humble right like I, I looked at it like I don't I don't need to portray the way I'm doing it as the way you should do it. So I wanted to be reserved about that. But people are curious, like, yeah. wouldn't you want to know how, uh, how, what inspires the chief of staff of the army? Yeah. Right. Like, so, you know, we're curious about that and we want to know. And, and or, or you just think it's obvious, uh, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Because your, your circle that's tightest around you, they know, I mean, they know mm-hmm. who you are. They spend mm-hmm. all this time with you. But the reality is, is you know, increasing responsibilities, like, it isn't necessarily quite as obvious um, at times to folks mm-hmm. and, and people bring, I think preconceived notions of what they think motivates a Lieutenant Colonel battalion commander. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we're all guilty of bringing those kind of pr- prejudging a little bit at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's, there can be an incredible divide. It seems in command uh, in understanding you know, and there's a gap. Battalion command, there's a gap. There's an age gap. There's an experience gap to everybody, but just about the field grades. But even the field grades, it's several years. Company commander could be 10 years younger. 
Yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've, you know, observed over the years that uh, in order to, con- to, to, you know, connect that or to, to bridge that divide, there's really got to be solid communication and repetition over and over and over again, you know, whether it's in, um, you know, everyday stuff or personal mentorship or, or vision, you know, that's, that's one of the things I want to ask you was about uh, your vision. So just take your, take yourself back to the, the morning of the change of command. You know, your battalion change of command, right? You wake up that morning, you're like, okay, this is the big day. You know, this is a lifelong goal. Like, you know, we're all excited for the day. And then what is in your mind about what you think, what you need to do to get off on the right foot? And what are the things that you really want to do in command to make an impact? Like, what's the, what's the core thing you want to achieve during this seminal moment as a leader? Um, so let me back up. And so a moment at uh, Command General Staff College, you know, would have been five years before then. You know, I just left West Point. I'd been a year and a half in grad school, three years at West Point, starting teaching, starting uh, CJSC. And I'm looking around with all these guys I'd served with, you know, back together again. And a lot of them had done amazing stuff with uh, special operations units and all these things. And, and I mean, this clear sense to me, that I was like behind and mm-hmm. I'm not talking like just in terms of career, but intellectually in the profession and kind of other things, I was really very much aware that I was behind mm-hmm. and um, I had to, you know, there were some writing test and it was like, Hey, you know, write about success. And, but the topic didn't matter. You weren't being graded on uh, your ideas. It was really uh-huh. on the structure and grammar and all the stuff, which I was well prepared for having just taught history at the Academy. <laughs> right. Um, but it was just kind of like uh, this moment of like, holy crap, like, you know, there's a really good chance that I'm not going to do well as a major. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, <clears throat> you know, how folks design, define success and all these things. And, and I, and I kind of had this, I did this kind of thought exercise. Of, okay, well, what if, you know, what if I'm at 20 years retiring from the army um, as a lieutenant colonel and never commanded anything? Um, <clears throat> would I be successful? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I kind of thought about that for a little bit and wrote about it. And it was like, well, yeah. I mean, because, I, you know, ambition's important. I've I, I always wanted to command a battalion, kind of do all those things. But that's not like how I define success. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not what mattered. Um, you know, my dad had had a heart attack, um, pretty young. And it was, I think, a pretty big eye opener for him. And, you know, at the end of the day, like people are what matter. And, um, you know, I played sports all growing up. Kind of the coaches I had, the people that mattered in my life that made a difference. Um, you know, my, my friends and their parents, you know, when I was growing up, my parents had a divorce. I mean, folks that really kind of helped me through that time. And like, that's the stuff that mattered, you know? And so as I thought about it, relatively young parent, um, you know, the way I viewed success, I, I think was always kind of there, but the first time I'd really like defined it for myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, so for me, um, you know, the day I'm taking command, um, you know, it was all about, okay, I want to, I want to help the people around me 
um, be as good as they can be. And if I can do that, then that brings out the best in me. That's mm-hmm. the best, mm-hmm. that's the best me that I can be. Yeah. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I, I actually did the, after the command and I was nervous as hell standing there, um, went to the theater, you know, got the whole battalion in there and I, I hand them out index cards and I was like, write your superpower. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. what's your superpower? Uh-huh. Like everybody in there and they get done right and I collect them all up and I'm like, well, I want you to know my superpower. I'm like Alfred the Butler from Batman. <laughs> like I don't have any superpowers, uh-huh. but I'm pretty good at helping people like achieve their superpowers. Okay. And I had a lot of confidence in that um, from my to- previous time in the army and, and then from teaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if I got a superpower, it's being Alfred the Butler mm-hmm. and being able to help people. And I think it's because I'm genuinely interested in people. Yeah, I'm generally right. interested in what they do. I have a little bit non-conventional view sometimes of things. And, you know, um, I think, uh, and so my whole, my whole vision was around people. Um, you know, and the other part of that is like long view. Like I think in the army and it, well, I mean, my wife works for corporate America. I mean, there's this tendency to look quarterly uh-huh. and look uh-huh. short term. And anything worth doing is generally, I think, a long-term like investment, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, a simple example of you know, you got one of your best soldiers in a battalion, and everybody wants to reenlist that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that guy's packing the gear to go to medical school, and that's his calling in life, mm-hmm. what am I doing trying to talk him into staying in the army? Mm-hmm. Like I'm far better off like doing everything in my power to help that soldier achieve their goals. Right. Yeah. Um, because one, like it's the right thing to do. I'll feel better about it. He'll feel better about it. And then two, the formation will see that we, we genuinely care what happens yeah. to them. Right. Like not, you know, um, I mean in a very um, you know, Kantian ethics sense that that individuals are an end of themselves, and mm-hmm. I think if you if you lead that way and you treat people as an end of themselves, it'll it'll pay back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's non transactional, but people see that and be like, okay, all I've ever wanted to do was soldier, but man, this guy's like motivated me to be as awesome as I can be as a soldier. Yeah, um, and so <clears throat> that you know, personal leadership, like philosophy. And I, you know, and I've been fortunate. I've had other people that are served with that are kind of like that. Um, There's a little bit of the the UCLA John Wooden in there. You know, you, the best way to raise the collective performance of the team is to focus on the individual's play and get them to the highest level they can. And when each individual tries to achieve excellence in whatever he does, then everyone will will be lifted up. Absolutely. And because that goes to culture and, um, you know, it's why I gravitated towards going to command an airborne unit. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be around people that wanted to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the other part going into command, I, mean, I took command in 2014. You know, I had a very, um, I'd come out of being a brigade XO. I'd worked a year helping on this project, writing about the Iraq war. And so being in DC, I had a real, I think, um, just the people I interacted with and the things I got to think about and write about a real sense that like we were at a moment of transition and shift. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my sense was like, there were a lot of things I would have loved to have done with the battalion. There were a lot of things that the army needed me to do. Mm -hmm. And so 
um, that, you know, I, I accepted early on that I had a responsibility to help the army and the battalion that the army entrusted me with to transition. And more importantly, a whole generation of leaders mm-hmm. to transition. Um, you know, that although we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan, that is, that is not the focal point mm-hmm. for our army. And there had to be a mindset change occur mm-hmm. um, in a whole host of ways. I mean, not just the way we fight, but the way that we do business, particularly in garrison that, you know, um, you know, I, I do, I believe in my gut that like the generation that you're impacting now and I'm impacting now will fight against an existential threat. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that doesn't happen. But the best thing I can do to ensure it doesn't happen is to, to prepare leaders, soldiers, our army uh, to be ready for yeah. it. I mean, that's the number one way to do it. And, um, you know, folks that led battalions in combat, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, that, that, were, that had its own hardships uh, and difficulties, certainly, particularly emotionally. Um, but, I mean, I really felt like... Uh, our, our generation of battalion commanders have been kind of given like, Hey, we got a lot of dirty work to do and mm-hmm. it's, it's not sexy and it's not, not all of it's going to be very popular. Um, but the, you know, reestablishment of discipline, good order and discipline mm-hmm. in our formation, mm-hmm. um, um, fundamental skills of how we train, mm-hmm. um, and, and a really a rethinking about, you know, the way we're going to have to fight against a near peer competitor and it is going to take a mindset change. Um, and so, you know, kind of for me, you know, vision and command was pretty easy. You know, I wrote it, um, and it was easy to, for me to talk about it because it's what I believed. It wasn't, um, it wasn't anything that was, you know, outside of that. And I think the other part is that, you know, for kind of each of the main points, I was able to to tie an experience I'd had mm-hmm. in the army to it. Um, you know, so for example, yeah, you know, I feel um, you know, there's there's two types of people in the army. There's people that are leaders, and there's people that are on their way to becoming leaders. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, one of my like favorite stories. Um, is, you know, I, I came back from Afghanistan. We did a, a jump. It was a night mass tack. First jump in 12 months. Probably should have been a night mass tack mm-hmm. as a battalion. And um, my exo broke his femur on the jump. I got rocked. Uh, probably a, a pretty good mild concussion. And I'm, I'm laying on the drop zone um, at Fort Bragg. And I don't know whether to put my weapon in operation, put my MVGs on my face, get out of my gear or put my radio together. And I'm trying to do all those things at the same time. Uh, so I'm, I'm an absolute disaster. Uh-huh. And, uh, We've this, all been here. yeah. <laughs> and this beautiful fire team wedge is coming towards me. And, um, the guy at the apex, the team leader is like, Hey, paratrooper, put your weapon in operation, get your nods on your face and get out of your harness and get moving. And he gets like a little bit closer and it's this kid, Mike Smith. And Mike wasn't a team leader. Mike was just a, you know, he was a, I think he was an AG in the company, uh, specialist, relatively recently promoted. 
And he's got three brand new privates uh-huh. that he's taking charge of and putting in a fire team wedge and looks beautiful and awesome. And uh, and the first paratrooper he came across that was a complete, you know, hot mess, <laughs> me, he wasn't afraid to step in and, and start giving purpose, direction, and motivation. Yeah. And uh, that those are the kind of people that I want to be around. And, and, um, and those are the kind of people I want to lead. And those are the kind of people that I want to follow. And so, you know, culturally... That was the, the mindset, you know, was trying to to get into a formation. Uh, and I've, I've I've been blessed. I've been in a couple units where you know that became the culture, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just it's awesome to be around. Yeah, you know, that takes constant reminding, right? Because inevitably, the 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 day the normal day to day army life can sometimes get monotonous if you're not training up for something specific, yeah. right? And so sometimes. You know, it's a, it's um, coming upon leaders to to continue to, to to remind them of what's what could potentially be in our future. You know, like how did you do that? How did you contextualize the fact that we could be at war next week or next next month? So, um, so if, you know, first is I kind of put myself back into you know the pre nine eleven army of my mindset and and those things and um. You know, so in many ways, I could kind of, you know, empathize. And, and uh, I mean, it's embarrassing as I think back to things I said, things other people I heard say, you know, as we were gearing up post 9-11 for Afghanistan and Iraq. And, um, and, then, and then being in graduate school uh, after you know, I did a deployment to Iraq and a deployment to Afghanistan, and um, feeling like I was like left out, like mm-hmm. in graduate school, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I called one of my mentors. I'm like, "Hey, sir, I made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't have come to grad school." And he's like, "Hey, uh, you're just cooling off between bouts. Like, there's plenty of war left. Uh-huh. Like, don't worry about it." And you know, uh, here we are. We're still in both those places. There's still plenty of uh, a war left. And so, you know, one being careful what you wish for. You know, everybody wants to deploy, and so you know, one of my messages. Hey, mm-hmm. stop worrying about whether you're going to deploy and start worrying about whether you're going to be ready mm-hmm. when you deploy. Right. Um, and uh, if we end up having to fight in Eastern Europe or um, on the Korean Peninsula, you know, it's going to be an away game. We're going to be outnumbered and we're going to be fighting people that know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the same thing as fighting rock farmers in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, and um and not that those fights necessarily were easy all the time in all the places we were at, but it's not the same thing as fighting the Russians in, in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so how do you convince people? Like, it's, it, I guess, I don't think I fully ever did. I mean, I think that's an evolution that's still ongoing in our army. Mm-hmm. You know, I think societally, I think people think that large-scale, you know, land war is a relic. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, history doesn't pr- predict the future, um, but that's a that's a pretty arrogant bet uh, to say that we won't have to fight a war on the scale of Korea or World War II ever again. That's a pretty arrogant bet uh, based on you know human history and human nature. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, and again, it's 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 not about being deployed it's you know it's about being ready you know everybody you know i had another friend i love this quote you know everybody wants to be a starter we don't need starters we need finishers you know we need people 
um, that are highly competent at what they do. And there's no rest. There's no magic pill. There's no substitute other than putting in the work and doing the rest. Mm-hmm. And you look at, you look at the special mission units and they're really, really good. And it's, there's no, they didn't get an injection, you know, having gotten to watch them at brag work and downrange work, they put in the work mm-hmm. and they do the little stuff right. And, um, you know, I certainly influenced by playing sports and, um, you know, my soccer coach at, uh, at Davidson, a guy named Matt Spear. And I talked to him right before I went to command and his advice to me was like, he's like, Hey, and I, I really respected him a lot. And his thing was like, Hey, he's like, the thing I learned, I stopped worried about recruiting like the best talent. And I started worrying about recruiting people with the right mindset. Cause from mindset, mm-hmm. you know, you'll get capacity, you know, uh, capacity and skill, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really believe that. And I, you know, Matt was the kind of guy playing for that we could beat a team five, nothing. And at the end of the game, hey, what are the three things we're going to improve? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the mindset, you know, yeah, you know, you did well. Okay. And what next? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think for our army, I think that, that we got to stoke that inner drive to just constantly be better. Yeah. Um, and, that's what professionals do. Yeah. They don't need to be told to go out and hit the, uh, you know, hit the sled or, or yeah. you know, similarly grab your rifle and go do dry fire, you know, and, and uh, do another set of PT, you know, or whatever it takes. And, um, you know, we're, we're blessed. If, if, our, if our number never gets called, um, you've seen combat, I've seen combat, uh, I've seen a lot of, of good people die. And a lot of bad stuff. And I, I will count myself blessed if I never have to go to war again. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I go, I want to be as ready as I can be and everybody with me as prepared as possible. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, for, le- you know, and they try to communicate this to young leaders of like, you know, the test is, can you look in the mirror? You know, you go to combat and can you look in the mirror? Can you look at yourself and say, mm-hmm. I did everything I could possibly do given the amount of time available, the amount of resources available. I did everything that I could possibly do. Mm-hmm. And if you can answer that, um, then you'll sleep at night, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and I lost soldiers in Iraq and, um, I was training when I got notified I was going to Iraq yeah. and the rest of my battalion wasn't. So I sleep at night. I, d- I laid it all out. I did everything. I, could. I didn't do everything right. Mm-hmm. There's stuff I would go back and do differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't for a lack of commitment and effort. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're human. We're going to all make mistakes, but you don't want to look back and be like, yeah, like I kind of sandbagged it. And that's, um, and incidentally, when I came out of command, no regret, no, like, uh, you know, people warned me, oh, you're going to be sad. And mm-hmm. I wasn't. Yeah. I left it all out when you, there. When you give it your all, there's yeah, that's the exactly it. Yeah. And I got a high five with a great guy that took over for me and is, I know for a fact is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, you know, at least for me in terms of happiness, like that's it. Like I, no regrets, you mm-hmm. know, the army, however this ends for me, I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. one of my, uh, my favorite quote, quotes recently was by Archilochus in 640 BC way back then. He's a recent quote. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Recent quote that I discovered. He's, uh, it's, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. My, uh, my battalion commander, Dan Morgan, when I was in 187, I mean, he used to use that one and it's yeah. true. 
And it's, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, and I think people, um, I guess what scares me right now is that people underestimate like what could be in front of us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and so I was at this conference last week and, you know, um, Marino six, uh, very eloquent kind of talk and, you know, our propensity as a military to, to lose the first fight. And, um, that's, we've recovered from that in the past. I'm not sure we'll get the opportunity the next time around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the surest way to, to have a short war, uh, in a blood and a less bloody war is if we end up in conflict, whoever our adversary is to absolutely knock their clock mm-hmm. and, you know, don't let them up off the mat. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can do that, you know, we're far more likely yeah. to have less war. Right. Um, and, and then we're far more likely to, to, to be able to be in a position of, um, extending a hand of peace. Um, but I, you know, I, our adversaries took us to school over the last 15 years. And right. right now I think they think they can get in the ring with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have to, we have to get our dominance back. So that's not the case. Yeah. I just, I, just I think that's lost on a lot of junior leaders. Yeah. I mean, I just think they assume that, well, we're Americans. Of course we'll win. Yeah. No, um, it's not a given. <laughs> no. Yeah. I just read, um, this kind of war, you know, in the first 10, 15 chapters of that is the Americans fighting for survival. And we don't often have to fight for survival on a strategic level, you know, or, yeah. and so that was, that was pretty humbling or pretty sobering to see. Um, but the decisive, so you think the decisive point is kind of shifting toward the front end, the, the, the earlier end of conflicts? I, I mean, um, I think that gives us the, the best, you know, one, it's the number one deterrent. I mean, that's, it gives us real deterrence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think the second part is, um, you know, I, I don't know how conflicts, particularly on the peninsula or Eastern Europe or other places in the world could play out. Um, but given, you, you know, at least recently kind of this, um, you know, gray area, I mean, you know, take, for example, Eastern Europe. I mean, if somebody tried, if, if we're tried with, you know, kind of little green men and hybrid militia and, and they come at us to see what we're all about and we absolutely clean their clock. Well, it's far more likely that we're going to end mm-hmm. up in general war, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know. Um, and, you know, from what I studied of Iraq and, you know, I think there were missed opportunities early on mm-hmm. um, based off our, you know, mistakes that we made at Echelon. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, you know, and as professional soldiers, I mean, that's all we can do. We can only be as, as, as ready as we can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think another part of that is, you know, and I think it's a, a product in some ways of our society, um, maybe some pathologies out of the war. Um, but this idea that it's somebody else's job, it's somebody else's responsibility. You know, we don't have enough of this or that or whatever. And, and that all may be, you know, well and good and it may be true. Um, but we only control what we can control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's like a company commander or a battalion commander, anybody complaining that somebody hadn't given us this or haven't done this for us. Okay. Unless you're maxed everything you got then you got to put your head down and get after it. And it doesn't mean that you don't communicate, you know, shortcomings or risks, all those things. But it's it's mildly interesting, mm-hmm. um, you know. 
our battalion, our brigade went to JRTC at 70% manning. We've been a, a slated to downsize and it was just the way it shook out. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I only, I talked that one time with my OC uh-huh. and then turned to the formation was like, okay, no more. Uh-huh. Nobody cares. The uh-huh. enemy doesn't care. Uh-huh. The enemy doesn't care that, you know, they didn't, they don't care. Yeah. And, um, we got to break that, like, that we're expecting somebody else to solve it for mm-hmm. us. They're not. They're mm-hmm. not going to solve it for us. That should be the hypothesis. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So here, so let me ask you about NTC then. Yeah. You know, in the training mindset, do you see that units come here and go through a transformation, maybe a mental or psychological transformation in the way they see the future fight? Do they get here and get tested to the point where their eyes are open a little bit more about what they could face? I think so. I mean, I think, um, you know, some leaders have talked about, you know, once a unit's come through two or three times, you know, there'll be a change. I, I, I don't think it's personally don't think it's it's really the unit because the unit, there's so much turnover and mm-hmm. the way our personnel system works. Um, you know, a unit that came here six months ago will have significant turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be pockets that, that you know, have kind of uh, experienced it and seen it. Um, but I think more importantly, generationally, like our Army, like I'm very, very confident that when the folks that are coming through here as company commanders come back as field grades, we're going to see pretty dramatic change mm-hmm. in the capability of our Army. Mm-hmm. You mean the ones who have gone through the decisive action rotation as say company commander? Company commander. Yeah. And then and then, you know, they they do awesome things, high five, go to CJC, and then they're back here as a battalion S3. Uh-huh. And I think that's where we'll see a pretty significant change. Okay. That's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's eye opening. You know, every <clears throat> every leader I've talked to has been um I think surprised by the tempo mm-hmm. um, here, you know, um, and it, you know, in some, I mean, it's it's funny because like you talked to battalion brigade commanders, and many of them had come through here when we were still doing decisive action uh, pre nine eleven or even yeah you know, or before two thousand three, and so it's there and it's in the back of the recesses of their mind, and then it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> This is this this hurts. <laughs> I've, only got, I've only got six hours for MDP, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's just a, such a change from the mission readiness exercises. Um, but we owe it, you know, we owe to to stress leaders to their absolute most, and we owe it to try and break their systems and processes mm-hmm. here. We owe that because um, you know I think that we can throw um, as hard or harder than what folks are going to get, um, in combat. Mm-hmm. I hope, mm-hmm. I hope that's what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's all out of love. I mean, it really is. I mean, that sounds like, but it is out of love. I mean, there is, um, every unit that I've covered down on that's come through here, I follow them and I'm looking for them mm-hmm. on army times and all these other things. Mm-hmm. I stay in touch and, you know, I know John Broadwater and Colonel Laurie, the cog are the same. I mean, we just want the best. We really do. We want units to be as well as they can possibly be. And because of what we see and immersed kind of in this, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, we're hope, hoping we're doing it fast enough mm-hmm. uh, to yeah. make units in our army better. Yeah. 
Colonel Kaufman, uh, the cog, as you know, before Colonel yeah. Nori, um, he said to dive into your weaknesses, to go and expose them, to root them out and spend time on them so that you can understand them. Because, you know, if you came here and had a, 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 a great rotation, everything was wonderful, you know, you won every battle and all that, there would still be weaknesses that weren't exposed that you could become, become more lethal if you if you unpack yeah. those and, and dove in. He's like, just embrace it. If you don't know the defense very well, spend a spend a week studying the defense and then go do a CPX on it and then go out in the field and focus on it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think, you know, I think the other is um, aim for mastery. You know, aim for mastery. I mean, master fundamental skills and they will apply to other things. You know, I kind of went full circle, the counter IED fight. Like, um, you know, my last deployment in 13, it's like, hey, like, there's no magic button. Let's just do combined arms maneuver. Mm-hmm. You know, link intel collection with fires, with, you know, ground maneuver, with air maneuver, mm-hmm. and like weird. Like yeah. the IED yeah. threat, you'll handle that threat. It's an obstacle. And so, you know, I think we got to resist like that there's some gimmick or trick to any of this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hitting the sled and doing the fundamentals like really, really well. And, you know, if you take a unit that doesn't get the chance maybe based on time to, to train the defense as well as they like, if they've done the fundamentals, they've done all the right things in attack, they've mastered how to do an attack. Military decision-making process, you know, the operations process, troop leadership procedures, PCCs, mm-hmm. PCIs, rehearsals. Mm-hmm. If all those things are at A level, that will translate into doing a defense like pretty well, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, it will translate into doing those things pretty well. Um, are there going to be gaps? Certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you're just kind of going through it, um, and hoping that it'll work out. It won't. Mm-hmm. Um, you sometimes so feel like are there. You sometimes feel like we can, we lean on mission command at the expense of mastery. Well, so mission command, it, here's a great, um, so mission command is not for staffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, staffs do like detailed planning, mm-hmm. right? And they're into science and, um, you know, but you take, you take a unit that's done, um, you know, deliberate attack and training 10 times. Um, and they've done it well, Mm -hmm. mastery. Well, then as a battalion commander, when you issue your, you know, your intent to company commanders and they have something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Back to we fall back to our training. Mm-hmm. They will be able to perform with intent. Mm-hmm. They will be able to okay. Hey, take the last overlay that we had. Mm-hmm. Use that. We're just going to do, you know, deliberate yeah. attack like that. Um, but mission command isn't like without control. Uh, you know, I think you right. do detailed planning, give detailed graphic, you know, direct fire control measures to support unit. What mission command really is, is now as a commander, your company commanders can solve these problems. They can be like, hey, hey, stop at this phase line, you know, to mm-hmm. an adjacent unit. Okay, mm-hmm. hey, I'm pulling up. Hey, the enemy, they're actually east of this phase line. Hold on a minute. I'm going to pull up to this phase line. I'm going to establish support by fire. Mm-hmm. And now we're able to crosstalk. We're able to solve that problem because we've 
you know, the higher headquarters create a framework in which they can solve that problem. Sure. They can yeah. adjust yeah. To, to reality on the ground. I mean, mission command is not, hey, go out there and self-actualize. Right. And right. like, that's what a lot of people think it is. Yeah. And it's, it's, sh- it's intellectually shallow. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes it's, it glosses over because we're insecure and, and not competent in our, you know, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's time to do this stuff. There's mm-hmm. time to do detailed direct fire control measures. Mm-hmm. If we get a lot of reps at it, we can do it really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like the first time you JMP out a jumper. It uh-huh. took you 30 minutes and you didn't even get to the pack tray. Right. Right? right. But with enough reps, you're able to do it intuitively without thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of skills that we've got to be intuitive at without thinking. And that's mm-hmm. only going to come from repetition. And then mm-hmm. once we do that, now we're able to like, hey, that's not going to work. Stop. Hold where you're at. I'm moving forward. You're going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, in the speed of trust, you know, Stephen Covey yeah. talks about uh, trust is character and competence, you know, yeah. and we forget that you, you've got to prove competence. Even if you've been in the seat for a while, you've got to, you've got to prove it in different areas. And when the team changes and reforms and under, under different conditions, you got to prove that competence again. You, yeah. know? you can't just run off and. I mean, my experience was I had company commanders um, that based off a lot of reps, a lot of time, like I could unleash. And they would tell me when what I told them to do didn't work. Mm. Hey, sir, that's not going to work. I need to do it this way. Mm. Roger that. We're good. Now I understand. Right. And then there were other people that I had to mission control. I mean, they just, Mm -hmm. they lacked the competence uh, to, you know, a lack of competence, uh, insecurity there will lead people to be less trustworthy. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that necessarily lying, but, you know, the other sh- shade of lying is, you know, it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's trying to get through the moment so we don't get revealed out for that we don't know. Right. And um, we have a bullshit problem in our army. Yeah. yeah. Um, that people just want to get through it. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to, like, master it. Right. right. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, so let me shift gears then. So let me, yeah. let me, uh, so your professional development approach, your routine, how, how's it now and how's it morphed over the course of your career? Um, so I had really good role models. I mean, I go back to General Nicholson and like, um, what he did when I was Lieutenant and a big part of me was like, I want to give that back to other people. Like I got this, mm-hmm. you know, I had, um, I had, you know, great battalion XO. Uh, I was fortunate. I had Pat work as a fellow. He was a oh, company yeah. commander when I was a company XO. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there were people I looked up to and that invested their time in folks. And so, you know, formatively as a senior first lieutenant, like I was like, ding, 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 this mm-hmm. is it. This is right. This is what it's supposed to be. And probably one of the happiest like years I've had in the army, I wouldn't have probably stayed in the army without those leaders like at that time. And, um, you know, so that, that had a big impact on me. Um, teaching at the academy had a big impact on me and mm-hmm. understanding that people process information differently, that people, uh, learn differently at different paces. Um, you know, and that, and the other, I think part of that, like, so my deep, um, you know, PowerPoint's overrated. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that, that, you know, what I learned from teaching at the academy is like, you get the, you get the question right and you don't have to lecture. Mm-hmm. Like people, they will, you know, the student will be the teacher. And, um, and I think the other is like, you know, it's influence of like games and I don't, I don't use it in the kind of the trivial sense, but you know, like playing soccer. I mean, the best way to learn how to play soccer is playing soccer. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's best done like small sided, mm-hmm. right? And we thrive on competition. I mean, human nature, we're, we're wired that way. And so, um, you know, I looked at leader development of, okay, how do I give people repetitions? And so mm-hmm. as a battalion commander, I use tactical decision games mm-hmm. pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but even like doing a platoon live fire, like, okay, you're going to brief it. We're going to talk about it. You're going to do a virtual exercise. You're going to do dry and blank. You're going to do live. And then you're going to go do a sticks after. Because in the situational training, I, I can do things to you I can't do in a live fire. Yeah, right. I can sleep deprive you. I can yeah. take away chow. I can make you walk 20 kilometers. Mm-hmm. I, I can do all. I can double the number of enemy on the objective and, and make you deal with that adversity and all those things. Um, but for me, the science is live firing. Mm-hmm. Like, so... You know, kind of mastery or proficiency is live firing. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. that's where you demonstrate that you're safe, that you're capable, that you understand mm-hmm. the capabilities, limitations of your formation of weapon systems and platforms. And then force on force is the art. Mm-hmm. But you can only get to art, I think, once you've mastered science. Yeah. Um, I think the other is, you know, one of my... Um, Areas I've identified, I think there's a lot of improvement. I think most of our professional military education, much of our training, it gravitates towards the the bottom third, the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. We set low expectations and then we're shocked and people meet them. Right, right. Right? I've got nine-year-olds and I'm always amazed that they know more, they're more capable than reflexively I often give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is true with soldiers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, we, if we ask more, we'll get more. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll feel better about it mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, cause we all feel better when we accomplish hard things and do hard mm-hmm. things. Um, but then we gotta be willing that it's like some people are going to be a little bit slower and that's okay. I mean, as long as people are given a hundred percent, as long as they're all in, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. We, we work more with those people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the way I did it was we did an assessment right out of the gate. So as soon as folks would sign into the unit, um, sergeant through staff, sergeant first class and lieutenants, pre-command captain, pre-career course captains, we would do a leaderboard. And mm-hmm. so, uh, they did an interview with the chaplain, um, and then we give them a PT test, um, administered by the company commander or HAC first sergeant. And then they would do a tactical decision game or exercise, an ethical decision exercise, and then a okay. board by a company commander, first sergeant, platoon sergeant. Okay. And they would just get asked a lot of really hard questions. Yeah. And they'd get kind of put on the spot. And so part of it was to assess, like, hey, where's this person at like, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, doctrinally, technical proficiency, tactical proficiency. Some of it was about, okay, let me look under the hood and mm-hmm. kind of see how this person's wired as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um but the other part was to lay down kind of the marker of like, hey, we have incredibly high expectations. And if you're not meeting, if you're not there right now, then you have work to do. Yeah, right. And you, you need to put in work. Yeah. Um, 
was the the ethical dilemma? Was it something detailed or was it like a simple? It was pretty simple? pretty detailed. It was oh, based was really? off of fifteen six I did. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, okay, all right. Um, we won't unpack that one then. Yeah, uh, it was pretty detailed. But it, I yeah. mean, it, and it was just one of those like you know most problems don't. If there was an easy answer, somebody would have figured it out. And mm-hmm. usually, it's it's least bad choices and. Um, you know, and I think the other is, so, I mean, one of the other things like ethically is like, and nobody said doing the right thing was going to be consequence free, uh-huh. you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I was very blessed my undergraduate education. I mean, Davidson college, I mean, the honor code there and, and, um, you know, and, and having watched my dad, you know, in business and kind of all these other things. I mean, it's I love the Mark Twain quote, you know, always do right you'll please some anger others and astonish the rest. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, just do right. Um, mm-hmm. And it won't necessarily be consequence free. I mean, doing the right thing is, it, you know, somebody will not agree with you, mm-hmm. you know, but again, it goes back to, can you look yourself in the mirror in the morning? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think there is a degree of like, with that, where you can help people is, um, thinking in terms of like some impulse control of like, Hey, you know, there's oftentimes there's times to stop and think about what you're getting ready to say or do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, I've certainly learned that. <laughs> right. Um, Hey, there, there's usually somebody that you can go like, Hey, this didn't feel right. I'm not sure if it's wrong, but you can go talk to somebody, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we put a chaplain in a battalion. So, you know, a Lieutenant sees something that he doesn't think is right. He may not have the confidence to act yet, he may not know if it's wrong or right. He's too new and experienced, but it just, it, it unsettles him mm-hmm. or her. Well, if it unsettles you, like you should probably go talk to somebody about it. Yeah. And I think it's incumbent upon leaders to create an environment where people can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's like, they can come in your office and be like, Hey, sir. Okay, man. Like you thought this is like, you know, wildly off and it's not. And here's why, yeah. you know, and, and, and unpack it with them or yeah, man, you're right. That's like probably not the way we ought to be doing business. Yeah. Probably doesn't mean we need to like court martial anybody, but it probably means that we need to sit somebody down and have a talk with them and help them get better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the magic, really magical things about our profession is that we have a common unifying drive. We're all serving for the same purpose ultimately. And so that when we see a problem, when we see something that's out of line, we're not, you don't have to be afraid of what stepping forward to solve the problem is going to do for you in, in light of like your peers, your, you know, left and yeah. right. Like when you solve that problem, it's going to make us all either safer, more lethal, more effective or a tighter team. Yeah. So, so I'll come out with it, you know, but civilian businesses, you know, areas of uh, government, they don't have that. It's a, it's a rat race among individuals. You know, and so when you step out, you say, Hey, I want to, you know, I'm not too sure about this. Like you can put yourself at risk. So, um, but I mean, we're a hierarchical organization and, um, like the right thing will all, will not always be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I like, I want junior leader. I want leaders in general to like know that mm-hmm. it doesn't. Um, but because we're a profession, we're not a business. It's still your duty to, to do it, yeah. to speak up and yeah. say, hey, this isn't right. And yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've had those instances where I've said that and it hadn't turned out great for me mm-hmm. at times. And it's like, okay, like I'm okay. Like I, mm-hmm. I sleep fine at night, mm-hmm. you know, and um, 
you we would love to believe this works the way you know things do in movies and and you know I, 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 but it doesn't i mean it, it it does not work that way you know there there are things that you got to take the long view on and how you solve those problems mm-hmm. you know um but i mean at the end of the day you just got to gravitate towards doing what's right yeah, and it's yeah. just let the chips fall where they may and it's like you know you got kids i got kids my kids don't give a crap what what rank I'm wearing when I leave the army or what, you know, positions I've held, they don't care. They won't care. Um, my mom doesn't care. Um, but she cares that I do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's discouraging when people see folks not do the right thing. It Mm -hmm. discourage, you know, when leaders don't do it, you know, others see it and it's, it's makes that much harder for others. Um, but I've always felt exhilarated when it's like, Hey, I've seen something that just isn't right. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time it's worked out, yeah. but there's times it has worked yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, good. Well, let me, let me ask you one more question yeah. as we wrap up here. Uh, this is, this is a really cool. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to do it. If you can insert one leadership lesson to every leader into the army right now, one lesson they need to, that we all really need to learn, what would it be? Um, culture matters. And culture in um, organizations matter. And um, arguably more so the bigger the organization gets. I, I, yeah, I did this out in the desert a couple months ago. I, I, I kind of looked at every unit, every organization I'd served in and I kind of graded it and not necessarily, you know, just being in a battalion, it'll go through periods and phases mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, for nine months, it was one kind of organization. And for 14 months, it's, you know, different. And, you know, for me, at least, it was pretty clear to tell the differences mm-hmm. of when. It, and, um, you know, the things that the best units or best organizations in snapshots in time had were, were culture. And, um, you know, a culture of accountability, um, a culture of, um, you know, excellence. I mean, commitment to, to being as awesome as individuals as we can be and, and as a team as we can be. And it's powerful when you're a, a part of that. Um, you know, that accountability, I mean, it's, holding oneself and others accountable and without, you know, malice or without like, mm-hmm. but just like, no, man, this isn't how we do things. We're going to do it right. And, um, it's a way more fun to be a part of an organization that's like that. Um, you know, that the team matters, you know, I mean, that culture of like, um, you know, serving in a brigade, where every battalion's in it for themselves is not a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Serving in a brigade where it's like, hey, we're all in for the brigade, and the brigade's all in for the division. Yeah. Um, that's powerful. And you know, I see you know see it out here, fourteen rotations and twenty years in the army. You know, I think get culture right, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not the barbecue and the org day. That's not it. It's doing. It's all about the little things. It's all the little. The little habits make all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Do people turn things in on time? 
and when they're turned into a high standard. Mm. You know, uh, what happens when things go wrong? Do we look left and look right and be like, well, you did this. No, I didn't. Or is it like, hey, we screwed this up and we're going to figure out how to solve it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it, it takes special leaders to build that kind of culture. Um, but I think it takes like a, a team mindset, you know, it, above all else of like, I just, you know, I, I think the, um, you know, I think there's this mythology out there that like, um, somebody's got to, you know, somebody's got to lose for somebody to win. And mm-hmm. it's not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in a brigade where every single battalion commander made Colonel went on to go command something, went mm-hmm. to senior service college and it happened because it was a team sport. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. And then at the end of the day, none of that stuff is why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's about the mission and it's about the men and get after it. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that, that culture, I mean, it's special and you see it, you get around organizations and you can tell it's there or you can tell when it's absent. So that's for me, that's the number one determinant of one, whether or not an organization is going to be like peak performance mm-hmm. and also like whether it's an organization that people want to be a part of. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess I'd leave you with. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to uh, spend with us. And uh, um, this is good. There's tons of good lessons here, man. Yeah, I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for your time, Drew. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Matt Hardman. Matt, he's a good buddy of mine. I've learned a lot from him over the last couple of years. And I appreciate him taking the time to come on the podcast and share his thoughts and insights. But one thing you might have noticed that I certainly picked up on um, in my conversation with Matt and with some of the others who have been on the podcast, like General Kaufman, Colonel Lopez, uh, General Brown, there's a difference in the way they talk about leadership. You can tell that they come at it from a perspective of building the team. You know, they bring their people around them, they get on the same team in the same huddle with their people. And, you know, that's a perspective of leadership um, that is uh, it's inclusive. Uh, it's encouraging, and it can be in contrast with some of the other leaders that some of us uh, have worked for in the past, um, and you may have seen in the past that um, draw a line between themselves and their people. You know, they it's almost like they point at them and say, "You people better do this job. I demand this from you." And and there's a there's a there's a dividing line. There's a nuance in that perspective. I think is important because I think you everybody agree that we much rather work for someone who brings us onto the team and encourages us, throws a throws a hand around you know, on our shoulders and, and tells us we can do it versus the person who stands back from afar and says, get it done in, in a way that's not inclusive. So, um, you know, that really comes out in Matt's uh, leadership approach and several others and uh, just encourage you to be that leader who builds the team and uh, versus uh, versus one that's divisive. Next time on the Military Leader Podcast, you'll hear my conversation with author, speaker, and retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. You may recognize Lieutenant Colonel Grossman from his most notable book, on Killing, the Psychological Cost of Killing in War and Society. This seminal work explores the killing experience and describes how the military over the generations has crafted its training to be more effective in combat and inoculate service members from the impacts of killing. He followed On Killing with On Combat, which describes the physiology of conflict and details the stress reactions a person experiences during a violent event like combat. I asked him to describe those effects in this interview and then also talk about how the influence of leaders can reduce the stress that soldiers experience in combat. 
Lieutenant Colonel Grossman offers a ton of insight in this interview, and here's a clip of what you'll hear next time. What we've got today is we've got that open order more than ever. You know, the, fire, the shots fired, you go to ground, and suddenly you're alone. You can't see anything. You can't see your friends. You can't hear your friends. And, and there's great value in that leader that just goes from position to position, uh, puts a hand on the shoulder, tells them good work. Hey, you know, uh, second squad is maneuvering left right now. Give them some cover fire. Uh, this, the presence of the leader is, is one of the most in, powerful tools in enabling performance in combat living with whatever you have to do in combat. My leader was there. My leader uh, 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 supported and encouraged me to do what I did. My leader approves of what I did. Leadership is that critical glue that holds the unit together. He can't see the guy to his left or his right, maybe, but he can see that leader that comes by and puts a hand on the shoulder and uh, and talks to him and guides him. Uh, you know, the stack's going in the door and, and, uh, and the leader's standing there tapping everyone on the shoulder as he goes in the door. We're putting the stack in the door and the leader's there, smacking everyone on the shoulder or tapping him on the helmet as he grows in. That's leadership, to be there for them, their hour of greatest need. The, the team leader leads from the front. But from that point on, uh, in most senses, our, our squad leader, our platoon leaders, uh, they, are, they are the ones that are kind of the glue that holds it together by moving across that line and communicating across that line and, uh, and holding that, that unit uh, cohesion together. Look for that episode next time on the Military Leader Podcast. Right now, why don't you head over to themilitaryleader.com and get on the Military Leader email list. That way you'll know when a new blog post or podcast episode comes out. That's the best way to find out. Remember, the views expressed here do not represent the Department of Defense or the U.S. government in any way. Thanks for listening and lead well.